from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Tom Lysat on August 5, 2019. Tom is an award-winning playwright and author. Raised Irish Catholic in Brooklyn, Tom has written some 30 plays in both English and Spanish. In the interview, Tom tells a spiritual journey in which he dropped everything in his life and began traveling around the world searching for spiritual truth. It's an amazing journey that led him to the Baha'i Faith. Tom's latest book is called Persian Passion of Gods and Gargoyles. It's a history of the early years of the Baha'i Faith when the personage of the Bab in 1844 declared that he's the return of the promised Mahdi in the Shia Islam tradition. The Bab's life, ministry, and martyrdom mirrors that of Christ in a remarkable way. We discussed Tom's book and the historical figures of both the Bab and a woman by the name of Tahare in the interview. Tom produced an excerpt of Persian Passion called Twin Witnesses in commemoration of the bicentenary of the birth of Baha'u'llah, prophet founder of the Baha'i Faith, which was commemorated in 2017, and the bicentenary of the birth of the Bab, commemorated in 2019. Tom reads an excerpt from Persian Passion, and he reads an excerpt from Twin Witnesses in the interview. Tom has a website called Sacred Drama, Sacred Space. Tom explains that historically, theater satisfied not only the social and aesthetic needs of people, but also their economic and spiritual needs. The purpose of his website is to provide resources for people to use theater as a means of building community. I started the interview by asking Tom to tell us about his Irish Catholic background. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, as an Irish Catholic, and this was back in the 50s and 60s when Catholicism was incredibly powerful in the United States. In fact, the Legion of Decency was an organization that raided the Hollywood movies, so the Catholic Church even controlled a lot of what Hollywood produced. And that's why we can understand, perhaps, why there were so many fears when Kennedy was running for president because Catholicism so, was so powerful. So that was my worldview, and it was a very much of an Irish Catholic background. And so I had 12 years of Catholic schooling. As a young boy, my grandmother, who we lived with, was a big influence on me spiritually. So there was a point where I was maybe 11, 12 years old where I wanted to be a missionary priest when I grew up. I was fascinated by Father Damien, who had been a Belgian priest who had gone to the to the Hawaiian Islands to live among the lepers. And so this was one of my heroes. I also had a literary hero as well, but just to give you an idea of how powerful that worldview was and how powerful it was in my own personal life growing up. And so what was your spiritual journey that took you from that background to becoming a Baha'i? Well, in grade school, football was a way in which my father and I bonded. And so I joined 
a football team that actually, when I was in seventh and eighth grade, we won the New York championship and we actually went to Florida to play a Dixie Bowl when I was 12 years old. And I mention that because when it became time to go to high school, it went without saying, of course, that it would be a Catholic school. I wanted to go to one that had a football team. And so there was a, a Jesuit prep school in downtown Brooklyn called Brooklyn Prep. It's now a Medgar Evers College. It was there, and the Jesuits are very, very liberal-minded for the most part. You know, Father Berrigan, Daniel Berrigan, the famous radical priest who was one of the Catonsville Nine back in the 60s, he had taught briefly at my high school. And so I learned to think for myself. Although it was a Catholic school, I ended up becoming an agnostic towards the end of my time there. I was fortunate enough that my athletic ability in, in football and baseball and and my scholastic record earned me a scholarship to Harvard. And it was while I was at Harvard and really began to explore who I was and also, you know, intellectual themes that I became an atheist and was so for three years. In my senior year, because I had two majors uh, psychology and literature, I had to write a thesis, a book-length thesis combining the two. And so I chose a metaphysical poet to do a psychological study of, George Herbert, who lived at the same time as John Donne. And it was in the course of researching that, that I began to intellectually believe that there was a God. Now, the previous year, as part of my psychology studies, I had taken a seminar on Zen meditation. And that was my inroad back into spirituality, in a sense, because Zen Buddhism didn't presuppose a supreme being, so it was accessible to me. And so that combination and this study, however, I'm a very intuitive person. I'm not, I don't come to things intellectually as much as I do intuitively. So even though I had this intellectual understanding of a prime mover, if you will, a first cause, um, it wasn't until a friend of mine invited me to go up to Maine in February of my senior year at Harvard because he said, you're working so hard on that thesis, you know, you need to get away. And it was on that weekend, I got lost in the snow in the woods of Maine. And I had this experience that lasted for about eight hours. And it was, you know, looking at the beauty of the bay and the snow and the trees. In brief, this was my intuitive experience that there was a maker. It was a personal experience because at the same time, in looking around at some of the man-made things while I was having this experience, I saw that what a man could create paled in comparison to what this prime mover could create. And so I realized that as a writer, whatever I would write would be like holding a candle up to the sun unless my writing somehow pointed to this greater purpose. And so after graduation, it was as if I had been lightning. And now I, I didn't want to like have to wait around to get hit by light. Yet I wanted to know how to plug into this electricity that was in the wall, so to speak. And so I decided to go as far away as possible. Um, forget about career, forget about romance, everything, even family and go as far away as possible. So I went to the South Pacific and I vowed that I wasn't going to write again until I found the meaning of life. There was Fiji, there was Hawaii, there was Tahiti, but it was finding a job. I mean, I arrived 
in the South Pacific with $100 in my pocket. And, you know, this was the day before cell phones and credit cards. So I was throwing the dice. <laughs> I was really intent on discovering this meaning. And providentially, I came across the teachings of Baha'u'llah in Australia. And the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> Tell us about that introduction. How did that happen? Well, I had gone to the South Pacific. As I said, I vowed never to write again, but of course I had a journal with me and three books I took. I took a Bible, which was interesting given my last three or four years as an atheist. I took a Bible, the portable Walt Whitman and the collected writings of Sri Aurobindo, a Hindu mystic. I found a little boarding house and I found a job working with Australian opals, which are precious gems. And, and I would spend every day sort of meditating and praying. And I even fasted one day on the anniversary of Sri Aurobindo's passing. So I was making somewhat progress, but then I felt like the bottom fell out on it. And I decided I really needed to go back to my support group in Boston because in college, I actually, it was a period, my sister used to over, always marvel at how many of my friends had spiritual leanings mostly of a non-traditional nature. And so I felt, okay, I needed this support group. So I'm going to use these tickets I have to go to these other cities. But basically, I'm on my way back because I need a support group to continue this pursuit. And in the first city I landed in, Canberra, which is the capital territory of Australia, like DC is in this country. And by the way, Canberra means an Aboriginal meeting place. So it was significant that when I arrived in that airport with the intention of climbing the highest point in Australia, Mount Kosciuszko, to try to get my meditative equilibrium back, I arrived at the airport. I was looking around, sort of what direction to head in, and this big bearded Aboriginal walked up to me and he said, you need a lift. And I said, okay. And he said, okay, wait here. And he headed across the concourse and I saw that he was helping two middle-aged men. They looked kind of East Indian to me, to claim their bags. And then he beckoned to me to come you know, with them. And one of those middle-aged men said something to him, and I didn't hear it, but I heard his reply. His reply was, no, he's not a Baha'i. And it was like a bell went off in my head. You know, once again, my intuitive sense kicked in, and it was like, I have to, I have to know what this is. He was actually taking these gentlemen to the university in Canberra, because on that day, a national youth, Baha'i youth conference was convening at the university, and many people were staying in the dorms. And while we're in the car, he asked me, you know, where I was going. And he probably thought I was crazy when I said I was going to, you know, climb Mount Kosciuszko. And he said, you know, he said a lot of people are staying at the university for this conference, but many are going to be staying at my wife and my house. He said, I can't really offer you a bed if you need it, but you can th I see you've got a sleeping bag. You, you, know, you can throw that on the floor if you need a place to stay tonight. I took him up on that because I, was, I wanted to know. And there was something else going on at the time visually in the sky, which uh, I'll go into if you're interested. When we got to his house, his wife answered the door, and I saw, oh, she was a white woman. So I saw the racial harmony between him and her that I was seeking because part of my quest was – I had no patience with the concept of personal salvation. I really felt that was sort of spiritual materialism. I was interested in universal redemption, that we're all in this together. And so part of that, of course, you know, involved, you know, the various races and classes. And so many of 
the religious organizations that I investigated often seemed to only be drawing from a really narrow spectrum of society. I ended up staying at this couple's house during the week. And when they attended sessions in the day that I wasn't going to, they actually left me alone in their house. And I would read these writings of Baha'u'llah. In the evening, I would go to these social gatherings. And what went through my head one night, you know, when I was a, a little boy, even I think before I could read, I was fascinated by this book I had of the Christian martyrs. And there was this one picture, you could see the Roman guards pointing to these two Christians that are about to be put to death. And I asked my mother what the caption said. And it was the Roman God saying to the other Roman God, see how these Christians love one another. And that evening at this Baha'i Youth Conference in Australia, when I looked around, I was astounded by the diversity, young, old, black, white, rich, poor, professors, illiterate people, men, women. And this line went through my head from my childhood, see how these Christians love one another. In addition to the diversity, I saw this really genuine love and affection. So often I felt in my investigation that I would go to different religious gatherings and, and there would be a certain pose, at least it appeared that way to me, or a mask of sincerity. Or, <laughs> but um, I didn't feel that at all on this occasion. And so by the time the week was over, I was a behind. That's a great story. Um, and I didn't even tell you all of it, by the way. I didn't tell you about the cloud. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Tell me about the cloud. <laughs> well, when I was picked up at the airport by this gentleman, Harry Penrith, I'm happy to say his name, who's passed on by now. And by the way, it's, it's important for us to realize that if we're really here to, to be forces of light in this time in which there's so many forces of darkness... You know, we have to have our, our eyes open, not just to our little daily personal agenda, but you know, to, to where there are receptive souls that are also seeking the light. And this man is an example of how he somehow detected in me that I was a seeker, and he reached out to me. Anyway, when I got in the car, I was astounded by these cloud formations, even though I'm with these strangers, right? And uh, I've heard this unusual word, Baha'i, that I'm curious about. I couldn't take my eyes off the clouds. There were these incredible ribbon clouds on the vault of the sky. And down below, there were these puffy cumulus clouds. The next day when I got up, I immediately went to the window in his house to see if the clouds were still in that formation, and they were. And then in the course of that day, as I said, I was reading these writings of these Baha'i writings of Baha'u'llah. And I decided, you know what, as long as I'm reading, I might as well go outside and read and so I can see the clouds as well. And so I did. And while I'm lying on the lawn, I decided, well, you know what, I'm going to lie on my back so I can see the clouds even while I'm reading. And the book I was reading was called Thief in the Night. And it was this man trying to prove you know, whether or not Baha'u'llah had fulfilled all the prophecies in the Bible. And at the point of the book that I was reading at that time was the three things Jesus had said would take place when he would return. And one of the things I'm reading, he says that he would come again in the clouds of glory. And when I got to this part, it was like the book dropped out of my hands and I had this intuitive feeling that Baha'u'llah was the fulfillment of that prophecy. So uh, soon thereafter, those cloud formations were no longer the way they had been. And so that was 
part of that intuitive confirmation because really the quest for truth is similar, I think, to falling in love in that you never know intellectually for certain the most profound experiences are not head experiences, they're heart experiences, you know, who we love and what we love. And you can't always know exactly mathematically, gee, this is the person I should marry, or this is exactly the truth. I kind of compare it to the two swings of a trapeze artist, you know, a, the trapeze artist is incredibly trained. So he, he has confidence or faith, if you will, in his or her ability. But in order to reach that second swing above the crowd, you've got to let go of the first one. That's the leap of faith. But it's not blind faith. It's a calculated risk. But you can't keep hanging on to one swing in order to reach the other. And I think in our most profound decisions in life, there is that happy combination of intellectual, logical preparedness, but then this intuitive marrying, so to speak, to the logical. And then you get what I call confirmations that when you make a decision, whether as I say you're dating someone to planning on marry or as I, you encountered this, what I felt was the truth that I was seeking, you then either get confirmed or corrected if you pay attention to the signs, so to speak. I mean, oftentimes people will tell you who's been divorced that they actually saw the things in the person that eventually ended the marriage, but they they kept pushing them aside because they allowed themselves to be blind to their love. My point being is that once I became a Baha'i, it was confirmation after confirmation so that when people ask me today, do you have faith? I say, no, I have experience. Not not being cute, but, but really that's what I feel is that path that you that you, you get confirmations from the divine guidance that, that's beholden to all of us, all around us at all times. So I'm speaking with Tom Lysat, award-winning playwright and author, whose most recent book is Persian Passion of Gods and Gargoyles. Now, before we get into your latest book, Tom, can you tell us about your work as a playwright? Well, as I say, I think I began my first book when I was seven years old. I was really in love with Robert Louis Stevenson and Treasure Island, and probably because the first time I heard it, my father read it to me on his lap. And so I always had this desire to be a writer. It was while I was in college that I realized I had a talent for dialogue and characterization, and that playwriting was my calling, and I had the privilege of mentoring to the playwright William Alfred, whose award-winning play Hogan's Goat gave Faye Dunaway her start. And I wrote my first play in my senior year in college. And as I said, I rewrote it that summer. And then as I got ready to go to Australia, I said, okay, I'm not going to write again until I know the meaning of life. And so I you know, continued writing plays and it took two forms um, I continued to write plays with the, the commercial stage in mind. And when I say commercial stage, I don't mean in the sense that, you know, perhaps sometimes you try to sell things to Hollywood. I mean in the sense that it was for a broad audience. And the, the other kind of plays I would be writing would be what I would call sacred theater. In other words, historically, theater has been the one unifying community activity. 
it addressed the economic, the spiritual, the artistic, and the social needs of a community. For example, take a rain dance of the Native Americans. It's social, it's artistic, it's spiritual because you're beseeching the great spirit for rain, for your crops, and of course it's economic because if the crops don't grow, and this was also true, let's say, in Polynesia when the people would gather on the beach and the drums would beat while artisans would fashion the boats for fishing. And so there was this combination that theater had this, and we see it somewhat in ancient Greece. It was social and artistic and spiritual. These were new takes on the, on the Greek myth, so to speak. It's only today where theater has sort of been compartmentalized into sort of an after-dinner mint of entertainment, for the most part, at least in the Western world. And so when I say this notion of sacred theater, it was an attempt to get back to using theater. I mean, theater's purpose, theater is a Greek word meaning to see. Notice we watch television, but theater's purpose was to see. It was making the invisible visible. So theater is not the art of realistic depiction. It's the art of suggestion because you're trying to suggest what the Bible calls the evidence of things unseen. My website that I have, it's called Sacred Space Social Drama, because when I had a theater company in the Andes of Peru, we put on health issue plays. So that was another aspect of theater that I've engaged in, using 15-foot-high puppets and head masks and stilts, where you have broad brushstroke theater to serve a need of the community. So it was those two kinds of theater are, are really dear to my heart. So I'm speaking with Tom Lysat, award-winning playwright and author, whose most recent book is Persian Passion of Gods and Gargoyles. So why don't we get into your most recent work, Tom? What inspired you to write Persian Passion? Well, I mentioned my mentor, William Alfred, before when I was in college, and uh, he was a devout Catholic that fascinated me too. I remember going to him and asking, you know, why a church and how to pray when I was on this spiritual quest after after my atheism was waning. One time in playwriting seminar, he said that the greatest drama ever written was the Gospels. And of course, there's a movie called The Greatest Story Ever Told. But the ticking clock, the time frame, the stakes, it has all the elements, those Gospels, that story of Jesus and his crucifixion, his passion of the most compelling drama. Well, when I encountered the history of the Baha'i faith, these six years, the first six years, when these early, like the Christian martyrs, these 20,000 people that gave their lives for this new faith were called the dawnbreakers because they were really heralding this new day of uh, the, the, well, the earth is one country and mankind its citizens. That's the new social reality. We can ignore it like we can ignore if there's a sun or if China exists, but that's the social reality. And so we see today in the world, all these narrow allegiances are crumbling, whether they be nationalism or religious sectarianism, you know. And so these dawnbreakers, I saw, wow, it, it's, it's, it's the perfect new universal myth because physicists tell us that the sun every second expends 400 million tons of itself. 
Imagine how big it is if every second the sun loses 400 million tons of itself. But it does so in order to enable you and I right now to exist, to give life and light. And so physicists now are coming to the understanding that the law of nature is creative death. It's the law of sacrifice, just like mothers do all the time. And so these dawn breakers gave their life in order to usher in this new day. And this story is as compelling as the Gospels because it's the primal, the primal myth of the battle of the forces of light and darkness and how light, even though it can seem at times, like with the crucifixion of Jesus or in the Baha'i Baha faith, the, the martyrdom of the herald of Baha'u'llah whose name was the Bab, even though they are put to death by the, interestingly enough, the priests of the previous dispensation, because they don't want to give up their power, there is a resurrection that these teachings begin to rise in the sky like the sun. So this book, in a sense, isn't just a historical drama, even though it is that. It's also, I feel today in these days of darkness, uh, an indication that the, of the hope of this new day rising, despite the fact that we're actually in the darkest hour before the dawn right now. So I'm speaking with Tom Lysat, award-winning playwright and author, whose most recent book is Persian Passion of Gods and Gargoyles, and we're speaking about his book and what inspired him to write it. Now, this book, Persian Passion, are you saying is focused on those six years when the Bob was proclaiming his mission to the Persian people? Well, well, Persian Passion is actually a trilogy, and this is the first book, and the subtitle is Of Gods and Gargoyles. And this book covers a two-year period. The entire trilogy will cover the period from 1846 to 1852, and each book covers a two-year period. Now, interestingly enough, it's really focused on 1848 because, as many of the listeners know, that was the year of revolution in Europe. So we, as Americans, know more about European history and that all these various kings were chased off their throne that year. Even the Pope was sent packing in Rome. And it, it's fascinating. And that, that also, of course, was the famous Seneca Falls Convention where in the United States the emancipation of women was declared for the first time. However, two weeks before that convention in Seneca Falls, in a village in Persia, which is now called Iran, there was a conference in which the emancipation of women was proclaimed by these early predecessors, these Babis, these followers of the Bab, who was the predecessor of Baha'u'llah and the Baha'is. And in 1848, it was when the Baha'i faith really came to a climax, so to speak. What's interesting is that some historians have even hinted that perhaps these rumblings in this faraway land of Persia, just like that once faraway land of Palestine and Bethlehem and Nazareth, that perhaps those were the um, seismographic rumblings that affected the rest of the world. And so it's a time, and if, and if we look into scientific advances, 1840s was when the inventions that we now have today pertaining to mass communication and mass transportation first began to 
be invented, such as the telegraph. And so we see that there was a power released to the world and we've tapped into it scientifically. But all these scientific advances have really had a spiritual purpose, which is to unify the planet. And we're dragging our heels spiritually because we're still hung up on these narrow allegiances. Although, you know, Baha'u'llah is the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, the Bab in his own right is considered an equal station messenger of God that inaugurated mm -hmm. this new age in this short time period in which he, God placed him on this earth to proclaim the preparation for Baha'u'llah mm -hmm. mm -hmm. to bring the message of the unity of mankind. It's the Bab that is representing the return of, in Christian tradition, <laughs> of the return of Christ and in the Islamic tradition, or at least the Shia Islamic tradition, the return of the 12th Imam. The Bab is fulfilling these prophecies, inaugurating the era uh, that Baha'u'llah then elucidates. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. and, and I'm wondering if you feel comfortable describing the parallels in the life and mission of the Bab compared to the life and the mission of Christ. You know, the 1840s was a period of expectation. That's when the Adventists began, and they took their name expecting the advent of Christ to come about. Many people who knew the Bible well felt in the 1840s Jesus was to return. Jews also felt that way. There were, there were a number of famous rabbis like Judah Al-Kalai and H.L. Silva who regarded the 1840s as the period of the time of the Messiah. And this was also a period in which the promised one of Islam, sometimes referred to as the Qayyim, sometimes as the Mahdi, was expected. What's fascinating is that both the Bible and the Quran talk about these days of fulfillment. And the, the book of Revelation says that it's going to be such a powerful time that twin witnesses will come. And that's why I, I wrote a, an, an excerpt from Persian Passion a booklet called Twin Witnesses. The Quran says that in those days there will be a, a double trumpet blast. So there's this concept of it's going to be such a powerful day that just as John the Baptist heralded the path for Jesus, in this day, not only would there be a herald, in this case the Bob, but he would actually be a messenger of God like Christ, like Muhammad, like Buddha, like Baha'u'llah. What's fascinating about the Bob's brief dispensation, just like Jesus's brief dispensation, he also um, had a suspect father, so to speak. His patrimony was under question. He was martyred in a, in a, in a horrific way, 750 riflemen. And what's fascinating is, I mean, I encourage everyone, this is one of the first Baha'i principles, is that don't take anybody's word for anything. Investigate truth for yourself. There are no priests in the Baha'i faith for that reason, because, because it is this age of fulfillment. Everyone is mature enough to investigate truth for him or herself, even though priests and clerics have had a very important role in the past, especially when most people were illiterate and couldn't read the scripture. Today, we don't need them. <laughs> And I say that with all respect, and hopefully soon we won't need generals either. So to put these professions out of business is really 
a nice concept because it's going to be the time when the lion lies down with the lamb. But to continue that parallel between Jesus and the Bob, you know, it's a mistaken thing to talk about a divine messenger in terms of his miracles because miracles and visions are only for the person to whom they happen. But yet there were fascinating events. You know, we know that the curtain in the temple, the Jewish temple, tore in half when Jesus gave up his ghost, so to speak, that there was an earthquake. And similar things occurred about the sky darkening when the Bob was was martyred and, and there was an earthquake. And so there were these kind of physical signs all the the martyrs, just like the Christian martyrs that occurred in Rome thereafter. So there is this short span of time in both Jesus's and the Bob's ministry, so to speak, that's in no way an indication of the power of their corresponding effects on the spiritual transformation of the planet. And that that's, I think, something worth elaborating on. In other words, as, as great a man as Socrates was, he was a philosopher. And the difference between these, what Baha'is call manifestations of God and philosophers, is that manifestations of God have changed the face of the planet, of social evolution. So, you know, until Moses came about, we didn't have united tribes. When Jesus has affected the city-states of the Mediterranean, they were united for the first time. You know, as great a, a kingdom as, as ancient Greece was, its city-states weren't united, Sparta and Athens, but it was Jesus' teachings that united them. And of course, the concept of nationhood came about through Muhammad and Islam. And so on this day, Baha'u'llah's revelation is to unite the planet. As I said, you know, as Baha'u'llah says, rather, you know, glory not in this that you love your country, glory in this that you love mankind. You know, the earth is one country and mankind's its citizens. And that's the difference between manifestations of God, you know, Jesus said, you shall know them by their fruits. And it's, it's the fruits of the life they lead, the fruits of the scripture they leave behind, that you realize no human being could have written this. When you read the parables of Jesus, there's such an incredible wisdom there. And the same is true of Baha'u'llah's writings. And then the third fruit, of course, is their effect on the planet. And that's why you know, we each have to investigate this truth for ourselves and, and come to our understanding, perhaps as I did in Australia a long time ago. So I'm speaking with Tom Lysat, award-winning playwright and author, whose most recent book is called Persian Passion of Gods and Gargoyles. And Tom was describing for us the personage of the Bab, who in the 19th century inaugurated the Baha'i faith so, Tom, do you have an excerpt from Persian Passion that you would like to share with us? Sure, because this was the first world movement, as I mentioned, in which the equality of men and women was proclaimed as a truth, as a, as, as a principle and as a fact. In fact, the Baha'i writings say if you can only afford to educate one child and you have a son and a daughter, you should educate the daughter before the son. Why? Because he says women often become mothers, girls often become mothers. And the mothers, therefore, if, if they are not educated, children won't be educated, and therefore mankind won't be educated. And so I'm going to read up just a paragraph about the situation in Persia regarding women's oppression. 
you know, in the, in the Bible, it was said, you know, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? This notion that, you know, Jesus, who was raised in Nazareth, it was really considered to be this dark place for whatever reason. And it seems as if in the grand plan, God has brought his messengers sometimes to the darkest, most immoral places to show the power of his light. And so the feminine oppression in, in Iran is one of those darknesses. And as I mentioned, it was in a Persian village where women were proclaimed for the first time. So I'll read one paragraph here of prose, because I know most people prefer dialogue, and, and maybe we'll do some of that as well. The Persian male protects his chief possession by secreting it away and surrounding its merits with mystery. He thus veils his wife with stone and iron, as well as with fabric. A Persian home resembles a prison, with women in solitary confinement at its insulated, isolated center. That this cloistered core of every home is called an Andaruni, or sacred place, hardly blesses it with high regard by its female inmates. After all, with their entire lives confined to a household, Persian women could take no part in public affairs. They could not even have a voice in their own personal fates. Just to ask a Persian man about a certain woman in his family was considered discourteous, if not insulting. It was even invasive and offensive to ask the name of a man's wife. More properly, she would be referred to as the person in the house. Or, if she was so blessed as to have a son, she might be designated as the mother of so-and-so. A woman was not an individual. Her existence was associative to a man's existence. I'm speaking with Tom Lysat, award-winning playwright and author, whose most recent book is called Persian Passion of Gods and Gargoyles, and he just read a paragraph from that about the status of women in Iran that really hasn't changed a whole lot since the 1979 revolution that really set back uh, the status of women in that country. You have released an excerpt from Persian Passion called Twin Witnesses. Why don't you tell us about that? So as I mentioned before, in 1848, it was the climax of this Babi faith, this Babi religion, the, uh, the predecessor to the Baha'i faith. And in the month of July 1848 specifically was when that conference was held of 81 of these early disciples of the Bab, the conference at which Tahereh, this incredibly brave woman, took off the veil that every Persian woman was obliged to wear and proclaimed. In a sense, she was, she was taking off the veil covering the potential of women and of the new day. And, and proclaim this emancipation. While this conference was going on, it was coordinated by Baha'u'llah. While the Bab was in prison, he was being brought to an inquisition in, in, in the city of Tabriz. And at the same time that this tribunal or inquisition was going on, staged to publicly humiliate him, Baha'u'llah was coordinating in conjunction with the Bob, so they were united in purpose, even if they were separated in place, coordinating this proclamation, specifically 
during the tribunal convened by both the court and the clergy, as I said, to humiliate the Bob, the Bob uses this largest public platform to actually proclaim for the first time that he is, in fact, the promised one, not only of Islam, but of all religions. At the same time, Baha'u'llah is galvanizing all these early disciples into realizing for the first time that this is not a reform movement of Islam, that this is an entirely new religious dispensation for a universal, world-embracing, world-uniting religion. And so I took those chapters that portrayed those two events in 1848, and in those 35 pages, I published through One Voice Press this booklet called Twin Witnesses. And I did that because... 1817 was the birth of Baha'u'llah. And so for 2017, for the bicentennial of the birth of Baha'u'llah, I wanted to publish something in honor of that, just as this year is the bicentenary of the birth of the Bob, 1819, 2019. And so it, it, was, it was my desire to get this book into print in, in honor of that bicentenary. So I'm speaking with Tom Lysat, award-winning playwright and author whose most recent book is Persian Passion of Gods and Gargoyles. And we were just talking about an excerpt that he published called Twin Witnesses in honor of the bicentenary of first the birth of Baha'u'llah. The bicentenary occurred in 2017 and to commemorate the bicentenary of the birth of the Bab, the bicentenary is this coming fall in 2019. Tom, would you like to read an excerpt from Twin Witnesses? I'm just going to read a, uh, a short segment about the Bob. The Bob was uh, imprisoned by the Grand Vizier or Prime Minister of Persia because the Shah had religious interests, and this Grand Vizier was terrified of losing his power over the Shah, and the Shah wanted to meet the Bob. So the Bob was put in this dungeon on the border of Persia and Russia, so many people became attracted to him that the Russian ambassador in Tehran asked that he be put away from the Russian border because he was afraid that it would cause messianic fever in Russia. And so here the, the Grand Vizier had imprisoned the Bob in this horrible dungeon thinking it was going to stamp out the Babi faith, but instead it begins to spread more and more. And so he decides then to transfer him to another dungeon in Western Persia or Iran. And so this brief segment is about during this transfer, this cavalry troop is put in charge to transfer him. The brigadier commander is a young man named Kuli Afshah, I'm just going to read one segment as to what happens on one particular day during this transfer of the Bob. One morning after breaking camp, the military escort had just mounted their steeds when the Bob unexpectedly spurred his horse into a swift gallop. Immediately, the cavalry convoy gave pursuit of the escaping prisoner. Kuli Afshah, an experienced horseman, was amazed by the dexterity and speed that the Bob employed to outride his men, especially since the prisoner had been deliberately given the leanest and oldest horse of the troop. 
Moreover, the Bob had just emerged from a dungeon where, without exercise, he had been jailed for almost a year. Though the cavalrymen were professional horsemen and galloping as skillfully as they had been trained, they could not overtake the fleeing prisoner. Brigadier Kuli Afshah had been entrusted by the Grand Vizier with a state prisoner. He could not fail his first royal commission. Flushed with dread that the Seed might very well escape, he spurred and whipped his steed into a foam. Suddenly, the Bob, of his own accord, pulled up in a cloud of dust. Masterfully reining in his horse, he turned to face his distant pursuers. Within minutes, the company galloped up and encircled him. Flushed and perspiring, Brigadier Cooley took hold of the prisoner's bridle. Were I desirous of escaping, said the Bob with a gentle smile, you could not prevent me. The amazed cavalry officer, a Turkoman, as familiar with horses as occurred with sheep, could hardly disagree. He had witnessed with his own eyes that not a single rider in his cavalry troop had proven horseman enough to equal the riding skill of this mild-mannered seed merchant. The royal cavalcade then resumed its escort march. For the remaining days of the journey, young Kuli Afshah watched his prisoner closely. However, the Bob never again showed any desire nor made any attempt to shake free of his military guard. However, the Seed Bob did show himself to be endowed with what the brigadier could only refer to as superhuman strength. The Azerbaijani highlands in early April maintain a bitter winter chill. Although as professional cavalrymen, Brigadier Cooley's troop was accustomed to riding in all kinds of inclement weather, Nonetheless, due to the freezing cold and arduous mountain trek, they struggled at times to stay steeded in their saddles. In contrast, the state prisoner gave not the slightest indication of discomfort or fatigue, no matter how biting the wind or rocky the terrain. From the moment he mounted his steed each morning until he dismounted each evening at the end of a stage, the Seed Bob never so much as changed his posture or shifted his seat in the saddle. His equanimity inspired awe in the young cavalry commander. On the ninth day of April of 1848, Kuli Afshad deposited his prisoner in the dungeon of Sharik. However, as he led his cavalry troop away from the castle prisoner, Brigadier Cooley departed as a devoted admirer of the Bob. So this segment shows the power, the, the charismatic power the Bob had on, on the wardens of both prisons, on whatever escort was put in charge of either taking him to his prison or conducting him to this inquisition. You know, we see, of course, a similar effect that Jesus has in the Gospels upon people who encounter him. So I've been speaking with award-winning playwright and author Tom Lysot, whose most recent book is Persian Passion of Gods and Gargoyles. And he just read and published excerpt called Twin Witnesses that comes out of that book. Tom, how did you come up with the title? Persian passion of gods and gargoyles? It really was a gift because um, 
there's many things that happen as a writer. You know, it's it's not that you choose your subject matter subject matter so much as often as it chooses you. And so I'm, I'm the, the title came to me because the English word passion has its roots in the Latin word passio, which means suffering. And interestingly enough, it was originally used the word passion in English specifically to refer to the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. It was only later that, uh, well, a secondary meaning then came about. A passion was, was, was an oratoria or a play based on the narrative of Christ's passion. And the modern usage, you know, to mean strong emotion or sexual desire, that grew over time from its Christian allusion to crucifixion and to the Greek word uh, pathos, which means that which evokes you know, pity or, or sadness. And so... The title for me is a reference to the Persian passion, as we talk of the passion of Christ, that there was one in Persia or two, perhaps. But yet also the antagonists of the book are slaves to their lust, greed and power hunger. And so much of the darkness in the modern world is because of slavery to those kinds of passion as well. And so the title has those multiple meanings. And then what about of gods and gargoyles? Without wanting to be too literal, because really many times it's better for for artwork and for literary work to be what the reader or the viewer experience it to be. I think it's an allusion to the fact there's a hint in the book of characters who are godlike and characters who are gargoyle-like in their hideousness and the way they deface what Abraham Lincoln called uh, the higher angels of our nature. You know, gargoyles were those hideous stone creatures that were put on cathedrals to scare the evil spirits away. And to continue a reference to Lincoln, he, he once <laughs> he once had uh, a visitor in, in, the, in the Oval Office, and, and after the visitor left, his, he came out and he said to his secretary, I, I, I didn't like that man's face. And his secretary said, President Lincoln, that's a terrible thing to say. That, that man's not responsible for his face. And the, and the president responded, oh, no, he said, after the age of 40, every man is responsible for his face. And I think in that sense, oftentimes our passions, whether they're our spiritual passions or our lust or our greed, they, they begin to show on our faces. <laughs> so perhaps that's what that subtitle means. So I've been speaking with Tom Lysat for the past hour, who's an award-winning playwright and author whose most recent book we've been talking about is called Persian Passion of Gods and Gargoyles. And Tom, I want to thank you so much for taking this hour to share your work and in particular this book. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. So for those listeners who are interested about anything that they've heard, my website yourcreativestage.com y-o-u-r-c-r-e-a-t-i-v-e s-t-a-g-e all one word dot com I really created it as a community resource for using theater for community building but one can contact me via that if there's of any interest for any reason regarding the book or, or theater or anything thank you and I will be posting that link as well so Tom where can people find your book Amazon is distributing it, so Amazon.com, and within a month, uh, the Kindle version will be available. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Tom Lysat.
award-winning playwright and author of Persian Passion, of Gods and Gargoyles. I post links to his website and published works on abahaiperspective.com, where you can also hear this interview and other interviews. You can also listen to Tom's interview on the YouTube channel, A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org, or you could call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.